Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Tune Arteries podcast. I am joined by my good friend, Timmy Lau. Hi, everyone. And we are um, shooting this out in Little Island in a lovely little office, um, as you can see. We're all socially distanced in that right, Tim? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we got a beautiful office space. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that, Tim? How um, that came about? Uh, a lady by the name of Sharon um, contacted us there uh, through you through a post up on Twitter saying that we needed somewhere with a bit of space to be able to do a podcast because the the actual shed isn't big enough. Um, and Sharon contacted us and she offered us this space, which is perfect. You know, everybody's two metres apart and it's working perfectly. Um, it's Media, Media Life. Media it? Life, yeah. yeah media so Life is the name of our company. We just yeah. want to just give her a shout out and say thanks yeah. to Sharon. Um, exactly. And we're hoping to do the podcasts here for as long as we we need to, yeah. you know, and get back to the shed then yeah. where there's a bit Back to our roots in the north side. Yeah. But for now, we're down in Little Island, stranded, and, uh, but thanks a million to Sharon and mm-hmm. everybody else at Media Life. But look, we'll horse into it. This week we have a great guest, uh, Churchfield man, uh, by the name of Seamus Kelly. Seamus has written a book, and there's a, mo- a movie in the pipeline. And uh, I won't introduce Seamus any further. He can do that himself. How are you keeping Seamus? I'm very well, lads. Um, first thing I want to say is it's an honour for me to be brought down here and given this chance. There is not too many people like yourselves willing to hear what we've got to say and put it out there because it needs to be said. It is one of the things in life that deals with memories and problems is talking whether it's on television on radio or to friends it needs to be done we you can't a person can't go through life holding all this back because it filters down to the generations and the people don't even realize yeah what we're directing 
Yeah. So it's good to talk and there's therapeutic value in that and helping yourself and helping us, but also helping other generations. So do you want to, we'll bring it back right to the start. Who were you, where are you from and what was the crack for you as a child? Um, my name is Seamus Kelly. I was born 27th of the 10th, 1962 in 13 So I was born upstairs in the bedroom. I was brought down and put into a chest of drawers beside the fire. <laughs> <laughs> um, these are the stories that my family told me. The doctor came to the door and he was, he was ran. Um, right, we just had to get rid of Seamus' squeaky chair there. <laughs> so uh, we just cut out all the look their teething problems. Um, if Rowan stays quiet now on that chair, we'll be laughing. But uh, look, Seamus, you were born in Churchfield Gardens in front of the fire. You were put into a chest of drawers. Take I it was away, put into a <laughs> chest of drawers and given a bottle. Uh, you know, the stories I was told. But you don't, I don't remember much about growing up. I don't think much many people do. But my, my life as a child came to a, a sudden halt when I was put into Churchfield School. Was there many in your family, Seamus? There was uh, my mum, my dad, four sisters and two brothers. Okay. And my father was in the industrial schools. Okay. And this is Churchfield before there was any Nocknahini Any Nocknahini or anything there like that. Yeah, you were the edge of the city, like... <coughs> yeah, we were. And you went into Churchfield School, primary school? Yeah. Um, I never liked it from day one. Um, there was about... Eight or nine kids inside in the class. We it took a while to settle down. Um, the other kids were getting on better than I was. I found it very hard to rest in a chair when the teacher was writing sums up on the blackboard. I couldn't make them out. I couldn't. I couldn't decide between letters or numbers I just couldn't do it um, looking back now the reason that that was happening was because I was I was diagnosed with ADHD and dyslexia from that age mm. um, but back in those days that wasn't common it, what, nobody knew about it well that's what they're telling us that it wasn't uh, known in back in them days. So we were labelled as mentally retarded spastics. That's the name I was given because I had ADHD. The language is shocking, isn't it? And it was two top psychiatrists that worked in Lota that diagnosed me with them. I do remember going down there a few times to see men in white coats where I was accompanied by the probation service. Um, as I said, I remember being out in the terrace playing with kids and I got sick of seeing kids eating dirt. Mm. It was nobody's fault. Mm. The north side was a poor area. So I don't know how or where, but I started going in and out of town. Stealing food, money, 
chocolate sweets, especially the fags and lighters. <gasps> like the old fags. Oh, jeez, I love me fags. <laughs> and I was bringing them back, and I just, I was just giving them to people. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the conditions of Churchill at the time? They were corporation houses. The people, you couldn't, you couldn't buy people like this. They were neighbours. God doesn't make people like that anymore. <sighs> they all watched out, I, I often noticed, because I knew that I was different. I always knew that I was different when I was small. I started listening and paying attention to what was really going on. When the kids were playing, I was playing along, but I was watching everything that was going on in that terrace. If there was a door opened or closed, I'd be into it. If there was a car in the terrace, it was just automatic, I don't know. And I kept this up for months, and I started getting caught and brought to the guard station. I was given beatings, you wouldn't believe it. And I was being charged and brought to court and the girls were calling to the door. At one stage, I thought there was a fucking extension out the back. And they couldn't do anything because of my age. No, What age were you back then? I, was, I can't remember because mm-hmm. I remember giving my date of birth as the 27th of the 10th, 1962. And the reason I can remember that was was because it was the girls. Every time I got caught as a child, I'd sign with an X, right? And they got fed up with that, so the girls taught me how to write my name, my address, and my date of birth. And that's how I know I always gave the right date of birth. So I was eventually handed over to the probation service here in Cork. They were called the welfare service at the time. Mm. And I didn't take, I didn't care. I literally didn't care who they put me in or who put in charge of me or where they put me. I had no sense of fear. And as I'm going along, you'll understand, I had no fear of anybody, girls, beatings. Um, so... Things got out of hand in relation to me getting out of control. I never harmed anyone. Um, But I did do a lot of things in my life. But as I got worse, the situation with the guards, the probation service, the courts, they were all going crazy because I was getting away with what I was getting away with, and there was no homes or any place to take me. So they eventually found an assessment centre in Finglas, St Michael's, and I was sent up there five times. Um, what was St Michael's like? Uh, how would you describe it? Um, it, it the detention was it? Would it you be can't a... move from this building. Yeah. You know, there was about like it was a big, huge building with 30 or 40 rooms. You were locked in at all times. But I soon got used to it. And I was going up and down to Cork and I was being kept away from my parents. And 
they eventually left me out again. So I went back to the only thing I could do because when they got me back into school, I was with in Churchville School and the beatings got worse. Every single day I was there, the teacher drew blood out of me. I was slapped off tables. Tables were slapped off of me. I was hopped off of doors and everything. And he was a very tall, thin teacher with glasses. And he used to walk around with a cane. Well, well, that's how he's. And you'd see him tapping young fellas, you know, just that, and lashing her off the table. But I do remember one day I was inside in the class and somewhere in my head I had a figure of money. I know I know how to make up money. And the teacher put a, a sum up in the blackboard and he says, Kelly... Two eighteens. Now, this, in 18 and 18, there was a line and there was an X beside it, so you have to subtract and all that. Yeah. And I said out loud, well, two twenties is 40, and take four out of that. There's your answer. And he stood back and he brought the cane. I mean, this was a big man and I was a child on a table. Mm. And he went back and he brought it right across there. He says, I don't like it when pricks like you, he says, are smarter than me. You'll do that the proper way. You'll subtract and you'll do all that. I says, I don't know how to do it. And the beatings never stopped. Um, My mother came down to the school. My father came down to the school. And they got nowhere. Um, I was actually, it got to a stage that when I went into the class and the teacher was beating me and we were left out for a break, you got a, a white bun and a glass of milk. And then I had the problem of all the young fellas that were in there doing what the teacher was doing. So I put a stop to it. I grabbed one child the same age as myself. He was trying to take my milk and my bun and I just put him up against the wall. I said, you're not a teacher. I said, I'll kill you. No, it was only a child. I didn't mean what I said. Yeah. And I left word, and I kind of shouted to any other kids, and if he try this again, and I'll crucify ye. You're not teachers. I'm putting up with enough of shit like that off of him. I don't need ye. I need ye to be my friends. Mm. Fuck off, we're not going to be your friends. They were all the teachers' pets. So the probation service then got heavily involved, and... They started bringing me up and down to Lota to be assessed by psychiatrists, men in white coats. For the people that don't know what Lota is, a lot of people not from Cork watch the podcast. Um, Lota is a, a school down in just below Silver Springs for mentally retarded children of all states and ages. They live there. And I remember seeing this man in white coat three or four times. I didn't give him any information because I didn't have any information, but I didn't know at the time that there was reports ordered by the courts. That's why kids were being brought up and down to be down there and assessed and brought back to the courts. But at the time, I didn't know. But looking back now, we know what the religious orders and the industrial schools done. We fucking know what they've done. But there is a more darker, sinister story. And it's in this book. And I name, and I shame, 
probation officers, social workers, welfare officers, teachers from Churchfield School. I've named and shamed psychiatrists in Lorta, and I've explained what the courts and how the judges were involved in this. These reports that were being sent back to the courts, there was always a note up on top, and I've got documents there to prove it if you need to see them. And on that note it said not to be read out in open court. Looking back at it, I didn't take much notice, but now looking back at it, what the court did was took the rights of the parents and the child of the law away from them. Because the parents, I've, I've witnessed it, I've stood there, I've been part of it. The parents were standing there and they knew that their child was going to an industrial school and they thought it was for either stealing or not going to school. What they did, parents didn't know was that the judge was reading reports that both parents were out seven nights a week, both parents were out seven days a week, their kids were outside feeding them or feeding themselves, and that gave the, the courts an excuse to remove children because they weren't being looked after. The parents in the court didn't know about these reports. It went on and it went on, and they made report after report after report about me that were not true. RTE made a documentary in 1973 or 4 about me, and it made me out to be a monster that I never was. How old were you when, when all this was going on? Um, I don't know because... Like, I could sit here and say... Like, were you still I in lo- primary school? No, I was gone out of there. Gone that, I ran out of there because of the beatings. I couldn't take the beatings anymore. Yeah. People are always saying to me, but what age were you? I could, always, I could easily look back and say that I was this age and that age. Mm. But that would be cheating in my eyes. Mm. I can't remember because when I gave my date of birth, the probation service then came along and forged all my documents, making me three mm. years older. And I thought I was that. Because, as I said, the we know that. There was people and groups of people on the outside, rounding up kids, bringing to Lota. And I've seen, I've witnessed it with the reports. And they were all false reports. And there was innocence kids taken and put into the industrial schools. And what's the motivation to forge the reports to get people admitted? I can't... I could sit here and lie, but I'm not going to. I don't know. I don't know why my probation officer forged my documents, making me three years older. All I can say to you is that the day he forged them documents, he was writing to Ferry House in Clomel. Now... In relation to the, the forgery, I approached the probation service in Dublin and I demanded a meeting. And I went up to them. I can barely read and write. And for me to sit down in meetings, people make a fool out of me, you know. So I had to, I had to get a little bit crabbed. There's an old saying, you can't beat the law, but you can bend it and warp it and buy it to get what you want. And that's the way it is. 
So I started studying all their rules and regulations, and that's how I used myself to get the better of them. I sat down with this guy in an office in Dublin, and he was a lamb. They must have just taken him out of college, thrown a suit on him and sat him down with me because I was explaining it and all he was saying was it was an accident, it was an accident mm. when this was done. So I said, it wasn't an accident. And I said, I'm going to prove to you now, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that this was done deliberately. So I turned around and I says, your name is Seamus Kelly and my name is Mr. Rex, the probation officer. And he says, I said... When the court hands you over to the probation service, it is their job to look after you, to try and help you in any way they can. That's what they're trained to do. That's what they're paid to do. But they went beyond that. My probation officer, as I said, started forging documents. And as I was getting my files back, I got documents that I shouldn't have gotten. I was in St. Lawrence's School, and when I got out of there in 1975, I came back to Cork, uneducated. While in St. Lawrence's School, I was forced to work for a teacher, making blocks, and I had to cycle 16 kilometres every morning to work in the rain, the heat, and the snow. I was there for months, and I never saw a penny. Um, and when I... The day I was... Now, I'm going to go back and forth to yeah. different parts because this is how I explain it. Yeah. I remember being out in the air in St. Lawrence's and one of the brothers called me and he says, Kelly, come here. He says, he says, go up and get your stuff, you're going home and you're not coming back. I remember that conversation with him. I know who it was. It was the same priest that brought me to Cork. And I says, brother, I says... Why did you keep me so long when I was only sentenced to a year and I'm here two and a half years? I said, why was that done? And he said, you never asked to be released. So I got out of St. Lawrence's. I came back to Cork, uneducated, after being raped, beaten, tortured, raped again, beaten again. And the worst thing they done was that they kept me away from my mum and dad. I never saw them mm. in the two and a half years I was up there. But one day I was up there, may God strike me down if I'm telling lies. The, the night watchman came into my room and he says, Kelly, you're going home in the morning to see your mum. I wasn't able to see my mum for months and months and months. So I stayed up all night. I went into every fella's room and took every one of their fags and I smoked every one of them and was in the toilet. I couldn't sleep. Me man. Me man. So I got up at six o'clock, came home to the kitchen. I got one slice of bread, glass of milk. I was thrown into a cow with a priest and two nuns. And they said prayers and all that stuff before we went to court. It was a long journey. We had nothing to eat. They wouldn't talk to me. They wouldn't even know I was there. They ignored me. So we got into Cork. And when you pass up Silver Springs, you go up and you go around the dangerous bend. Mm. And you're heading off up the side of the quay. 
and you come to a left turn, up ahead is the railway station, and when you turn left, you're going on to the quay again, and as you're going up, you can drive up, straight up, that'll need you, up the north side of town, or you can take a left. No, I... I was, what, ten and a half, eleven? Hadn't seen my mum for six months, any of my family, and while I was in St Lawrence's, the country fellas, their parents would get a free pass every month to come and see them. They never gave my parents any the documents. So we were driving up that road and the priest turned off left. And I said, brother, I said, where are we, where are we going? I said, you're supposed to be bringing me home. Oh, he says, we're just going out here, do something, we won't be long. Drove out to Southside and we drove into the guard station in Torco. And Brother James got out of the car and he went in to the guard station. And he came out with an escapee. One of the lads was out to get out for the weekend and he never came back. So he threw them into he threw him into the car. So I was behind the passenger. The escapee was there and there was a nun here. And none in the passenger to drive. Mm. And we started driving in, and we eventually came on to Patrick Street. And we drove down Patrick Street, and as soon as you come around the Savoy, you can see the water reservoir, and I just yeah. focused on it. I said, I'm going home, I'm going home. So we drove up past the Savoy, and we were stopped at the lights there before you go over Patrick's Bridge. And I was just looking and looking and I had the window that down that much. And um, the cars, they started to take off and whatever way I looked on Patrick Bridge, <laughs> my mum was, was there. She had bags of shopping and I screamed, Mam! She heard me. I was looking up and she dropped her bags. As I tried to get out of the car... I felt a very sharp pain on my right side of my face here and my ear. I didn't care. I tried to get out. The nun in the back started punching me. The nun in the front came around and started punching me and punching me. And I went down behind the seat. And I could see, you know, the car going. And they never brought me home after they telling me I was going to cock. They brought me down there to make sure I, that the escapee... But they were trying to teach you a lesson. Yeah. And so they weren't bringing you home? They weren't bringing me home after they telling me they were. They didn't bring me home. The only time I saw my man was on Patrick's Bridge and when I tried to get out of the car and shouted, Ma'am, I was punched down behind the driver's seat, passenger seat, Jesus and Christ. they drew blood. I mean they drew blood. I eventually came up from behind the chair and we were just passing Silver Springs. And what does a child think of? I can't remember what I was thinking. I just see my man's face. Mm. They brought me back to Dublin and I ran away the next day and I made my way to the railway station, Houston. I was hiding in the bushes when the trains are coming in, you know, there's bushes along the lines. I was waiting there. And I said, I'm going to fucking hop on a train. I didn't care. I heard noises behind me. 
when a hand came out and says, come out here, you little bastard, yeah. So it was the guards. And I said, guard, please don't bring me back to St. Lawrence's because I've been raped, beaten and tortured. And I told them what they'd done to me. We're doing our job. Throw me back in the door. Um, and I still am haunted by that day in Patrick Street. That's the day they broke my spirit. Mm. So... It's still, it's still very traumatising for oh, even today. I'm even scared, scared to go to my mum's grave, you know? So, with all that, and with all the forged documents that they were bringing against me and false charges, I just, I just played guilty to everything because I didn't know any better. I did it, I did it, and I didn't do half of them. And the writer found that out when she was getting the files. Your writer that wrote your book for you? Audrey O'Reardon. I remember being arrested one day and brought to the back Abbey Guard station by a tall detective, big ears and a gold tooth, and he was armed. And he was dealing with me a lot. And he brought me down to the back Abbey Guard station. He brought me upstairs. I stand over everything I said in this book. I, there's no lies in it. I've no reason to lie. You can't make up stories like this. So I was brought upstairs and I was brought into the front room that was looking out onto the lee. You could see the lane out there. And as I walked in, there was a table, small table, but there was metal shelving going down the, the floor towards the window. And I looked up on it and I saw a gun. I thought it was real. So I turned around to the girl and I said, is that a real gun? And he started acting stupid. He says, yeah, 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 yeah. I says, can I have a look of it? And he took the gun off. I was, what, 11? And he took the gun off and he put the gun into my hand. I thought it was fucking brilliant. But looking back, no, I can see why he was doing this. I sat down in the chair and he turned around to me and this is the actual conversation that went on. He says, Seamus, he says, you know now that the courts uh, can't send you away. There's no homes or anything like that, like that that would take you. So he says, would you do me a favour, he says. And he says, would you take a few charges into TIC, which was taken into consideration. And he says, they're for the old crimes, he says, and I look good in my boss's eyes. And from that day on, that particular guard spent 99.9 of his time chasing only me, waiting outside my door, and he started chasing other kids, and he was armed. And at the time, you don't really think of it, but there was a lot of children that he threw into the patrol car, frightening them, what your brother's doing to know, where are they now? That's what he was like. And... When I got out of Lawrence's... I actually think I know that card. Yeah. Actually, he was armed. I would have heard of him in, yeah. of him he, in my own... Like, he was an armed detective, and he spent most of his time chasing down yeah. children. I seen him. I was part of that thing. So when I got out of Lawrence's, and all the memories were coming back to me, I said to myself, I don't want to do this anymore. I said, I want to... 
have some sort of life. I was uneducated. While I was in the St. Lawrence's school, I was being forced to cycle 16 kilometres for work that I never saw pay. The amount of beatings that I got in the school, I didn't want to go back, so I said to myself, I'm going to stay out of trouble. And there are reports there from social workers, welfare officers, where it states that Seamus is out of trouble, I don't go in town anymore. But I got a job in the play scheme in the Procol Hall. And when the writer told me that the book was called The Fuse Within, I said, that's a weird name. I said, I don't understand that. And she then explained to me why it was called The Fuse Within. I said, brilliant name. So I was down in the play scheme for a couple of days and I was helping with the smaller kids because I got on with them. And the reason I got on with them was because I could think like them. I had ADHD and dyslexia. And I was out of trouble. But there was a local priest in Groen. He used to drive a green Volkswagen car. And he got involved in my case. At one stage, he went into a court of law and he took a Bible in his hand, knew the papers on the papers, and he swore to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Raping children wasn't the only thing that these people were doing, raping children and selling children. It wasn't. This particular priest swore my life away and the judge believed everything he said. Two days later, I got punished for it. Two days later, that priest was knocking on my door. Seamus, I'm very sorry, the evidence I gave was false. I didn't know. He was given that from the probation service because he didn't know much about me. So I went down to work. I was keeping myself clean. I was eating. I was sleeping. I wasn't doing anything. I was helping my mama home. And I loved the job. So I was walked down by Hartnett's and there was a group of people come out and this priest came around the corner, same priest, from Groton, and he walks over and he says, you, you dirty scumbag bastard, he says, get the fuck away from here. He says, I don't ever want to see you here. I looked at him and says, what's wrong? He says, you were up to your old tricks again. He says, get away, we're all washing our hands of you. He turned around, he walked away, and I started crying. I knew I didn't do anything, but I'm being punished like I did before. Mm. Different people, same tune. I turned around, I walked up the hill. I went up home and I slammed the door. My mum said, what are you doing back from work? I said, nothing. I went upstairs, I had a fag on the bed, I cried myself to sleep. Fifteen years of age and I cried myself to sleep. And when I woke up, I said it to myself, if this is the life that this this child is going to get, I'm not giving up. I'm going to fight these fuckers all the way. And I went out that night and I started breaking into places and I got into trouble again. And that was the fuse within. Three days later, that priest came off to my door. Seamus, I'm very sorry. We got the wrong information. You didn't do the damage. Now, December, I was selling my books outside the GPO here in town, on Oliver Blunkett Street. And I was talking to this woman about that particular instance. A woman from the crowd came over and said, Seamus, I remember that priest firing you for something you didn't do. She says, I remember that. 
and I started getting into trouble. I, I couldn't read and write. So at that stage, you were like, you know what, I'm getting fucking lashed over here for stuff I'm not doing. I'm going to give them something. I'm going to, to, go, I'm going to go out there. I'm, not go, I'm going to fight back. That's what I said. I'm not going to let them get the better of me. I went out and I started mounting up charges and charges and charges. The beatings that I got, they never stopped. So, in all the times that I spent in prison, the probation service was there to help us, and they always taught me to fuck off. It was the look in 1985 I got. Can I say yeah. Do you know the, the way it was back then, the guards and the probation, because we're giving the guards an, an awful kind of fucking view here you know, at the moment, mm. and the probation services, like I've dealt with them recently, and they're actually good, but back then, in your time... In my day, yeah. they were brutal. Now, yeah. I, because of my organisations, I do work with survivors and I do work with probation service. Now, and you've got a good relationship with the probation service yeah. today. Today, yeah. yeah. but it's not them I have the problem with. It's the guys in Dublin that make the decisions. I became great friends with a probation officer here in Cork and he read my book and I was invited over to the probation service. He wanted to talk to me. And he says, Seamus, he says, you seem to know what you're doing. And he says, I have a problem here, he says. He says, every six Months, 12 months, we get the same people back from the courts to do community service. Year in, year out, the same people, he says. And he says, we're helping them. But he says, we're not capable of dealing with their addictions. Now, he says to me, he says, Seamus, I know you have experience in dealing with survivors with addictions because of Caranoa and all them places. He said, I want you to come over here and set up an information mm. little office where I can talk to the guys over there because survivors' kids that have these problems are entitled to this treatment where they go in and they stay over a week. And we arranged this and he wrote to Dublin to the offices and Dublin told him, fuck off. Simply, no. Mm. And... I'm not educated, I might be a little bit thick, but I'm not stupid. With all the times that I spent in trouble, I often wanted to stay, like in jail, I often wanted to stay out. But let me say this, in every prison in our days, there was programmes for alcoholics, drug addicts, rapists, murderers. Not one prison had a programme where to show prisoners how to stay out of trouble. Mm. How to deal with arguments if you're arguing with your wife instead of getting up and running out and fucking doing something. Sit. They didn't exist. Mm. They were never there because the probation service didn't care. Mm. Um, the book, I was invited into 96FM a couple of years ago to tell my story to PJ Coogan. And... Because of the story that I told, there was a writer listening, Audrey O'Reardon, and we got together, and six years, six years later, this came out. Michal Merton launched this book, and in his speech, I have his recordings, in his speech, he states that with the documents and the evidence that Seamus Kelly has, it allows him to point the fingers. 
So what this book does, it names and shames the people and organisations that thought they got away with it. Did anybody ever ask themselves, how did these kids get from their homes to the courts, to Lorta, to be assessed back to the courts and sent away? It was because of the probation service at the time, along with social workers, welfare officers, some teachers in Churchfield School, Lorta, psychiatrists, the court and the judges, they were all part of a ring outside rounding up kids. I deserve to be punished, and I'd always say that. But there was kids taken from families. The only wrong they ever did was ask for help. We did a travel or lady on the podcast last week. She was speaking about uh, the cruelty man coming and running. I know them the cruelty man in Churchfield. Yeah. I've seen him. He was like in Churchfield school, there was the teachers, there was the principal. The school inspector in Churchfield school, he was our cruelty man. If somebody's father died in the terrace, within 48 hours you would have a group of people who are important people educated from organisations up trying to take the kids because the parents can't, the father died and it was so bad then. When did all this, when did that kind of carry and stop from taking kids away from their parents and stuff like that? Um, I'd say probably around the 80s. So I remember Has it really stopped? Where, I've talked. Where, I've gone around selling my book door mm. to door and I've talked with people that have asked for help and their kids were taken. Mm. Today's in today. Yeah. It's crazy. The book, I was up in Grand before Christmas. There was a thousand copies printed and there is 930 books gone. I've sold 300 up around Grand in the last couple of weeks. Um... There'll never be a book like it. I'll stand over it. I've named and shamed them. I don't care. Yeah, can people get their hands on it? It's not sold in shops because if I went into I went into Waterstones and they'd be looking at 20 to 25 euro and this book wasn't being done for money. Mm. This book for me was being done out of revenge because of what the probation and all them people done and got away with it. It is time for them to be named and shamed and come forward and to be punished for what they did. And what about you on a personal level, Seamus? Um, have you have you kind of learned to get on with your life? No. Like, no, you're still no. kind of stuck in that? I'm stuck. I still can barely read and write, but I'm streetwise. Mm. And with all the experts that they had checking me out, there was, there was one psychiatrist in Lorta on a Monday. He sent a letter to the court. This child is mentally retarded as spastic. The following week, the same psychiatrist, the letter to the court, he's cured. They were all given different mm. uh, opinions, mm. but none of them were right. They said, my probation officer said that I'll never settle down. I'll be in out of jail all my life. I'll be a scumbag, drugs, everything. In 1983, I married a woman from the south side. Mm. And she was an angel that God specially made for me. Because it was her that brought me 
taught me about life for a kidney, cock prison. He was another great man. They, they started talking to me, not as an animal, not as a monster, but as a human being. I'd be lost without my wife, mm. my kids, my grandkids. You're still together, obviously. You're 38 years, we've had our ups and downs. Yeah. That's fantastic, I can relate to that. If I was asked, if I was given a chance, I won't lie about anything yeah. because it's not right. It's just, if if God stood there and said, Seamus, I'm going to give you a chance to change your life, go back and none of this happened, I wouldn't take it because I wouldn't have met my wife. Mm. And we always say that, like, mm. as bad as things were, you know, being in addiction and yeah. being in and out of prison and treatment centres and homelessness and all these things, you wouldn't go back and change it because it kind of makes you who you are today. And you've said, a couple, of, you've said a couple of times now that um, you're uneducated and yeah. you might be smart, but I actually see a very intelligent man before me. It takes a, it takes a lot to come through that and come out the yeah. other side of it. Oh, it takes no, a lot no. of smarts to navigate your way through all that violence and all yeah. that. Um, madness, you know, so give yourself some credit there as well. Well, yes, like all, me, the, all the smarts out from books, and a lot of people that have the smarts from the books let you down in your life, do yeah, you know? They did. Um, I just came through life hating everybody because of what they were doing. I was, if there was something done in the neighborhood and I wasn't there, my name would be mentioned. In 1973, I got up onto the market roof, the Lacey House. I was fully intending breaking in there to get food to bring it back to North. They charged me with 48 chickens after it. I fell off the roof, and when I hit the floor, I was dead. My lungs collapsed, half my chin was missing, blood coming out of my ears. And it was my own fault for being up there. I can't blame anyone. I was rushed to St. Finbar's Hospital where I was put into a coma for a week. My family came up. I can't remember any of this because I was in a coma. My family came up, my sister argued with the hospital staff. He's 11 years of age, he's in a coma. Why is there fucking handcuffs on his legs and on his ankles and a girl standing outside the door? Mm. Jesus. I was up there for a week, I was transferred to Southfields Court. No, he was in bits, I couldn't walk or anything. And I was down there for a few months, and I got out, and within two days of my getting out, there was girls at the door handing me charges. And one of the charges that on the 24th of January 1974, I was charged with breaking into St. Francis School in North Main Street. I was in the hospital recovering. Mm. I didn't do this. Anything done in the north, I should blame Kelly. I lost my job, I lost my career because of a priest convicting me of doing something I didn't do. Mm. What about them? Let's forget about the industrial schools, let's go after these people because without these people, the probation, the courts, the industrial schools couldn't have children because they were going yeah, in and it's, out. It's a whole system. It's a whole system that is rotten. Mm. And so how, like... You know, you have all these um, traumatic experiences that obviously still affect you today. What? How do you deal with them on a daily basis? Do you get? Do you have nightmares, flashbacks? Have you any? Um, I I don't have nightmares. I don't have flashbacks. But every now and then I'll hear a sound. 
I'll hear a voice that'll bring me back. Back, um, we Karanoa sent five of us back to to learn how to read and write. I went back to school, and it was in the life centre out by the park there. Who were Karanoa? It was an organisation set up by the government. Okay. They were given millions and millions and millions of euros to look after survivors, change their lives, do up the homes. Survivors of industrial schools. Of industrial schools. To get new teeth, glasses, the homes done. So we accessed that. And um, it was fucking crazy right back in them days. I seen things as a child. I seen things done to kids. Only Nazis would do. Mm. And I've read... Because we only started talking, we only met each other the other day. That's all so the I, first time. I've skimmed through the book, the first few chapters of it, and some of it is very graphic, you know. Mm. Some of it is very sad, what what was happening to the children in the industrial school. It wasn't just me, I'm speaking for a lord of you know, kids. Exactly, and Catherine last week speaking on behalf of the, gu- the girls in yeah. the, the dandries and all that. It was um, crazy, It's unbelievable, do you know. But, do you know, let's say if people wanted to read the book, can they get it at all? Um, there's about, we got a thousand books left, uh, printed. There's only about 60, 70 books left. And I prefer to go door to door. That way then I can talk to people and people are coming out telling me. Mm. What if we throw a, a phone number or an email at the end of the description? What I would like to do is, I'd like to keep it the way I'm going. What I'll do with your permission is, I'll give out my phone number. Mm. And... Like I said, I'm not saying that there is only uh, 60-odd books left. I'll give out my phone number there, and if people want the book to come, I'll sign it at the door. No, the book is only €11 with a euro going to the Vincent Paul. I'm not doing this for the money. Have you any plans of getting any more printed? Um, Not at the moment, but the film, there's no talk of a second book. Would you be willing to say for, if there was anybody uh, listening I'm just thinking, to this? There's loads of people in Australia. Do you know? know if there's a lot of people listening to this, yeah. like probably went through similar stuff to yourself, and yeah. they, they have never came out with about it, and they're just looking for something to talk to, and they've been struggling for most of their lives with yeah. it. Well, yeah. I, d- I have helped a lot of people, but I'm restricted in the amount of help I can get. I can sit down and talk with somebody. I could advise people what to do. Um, and if necessary, the Catholic Church set up uh, an organisation a couple of years ago, a couple of years ago, towards healing. It is the best thing that ever came out of the church for survivors. It's a group of people that were set up that listen to us. They don't treat us like animals. They don't, they don't see us as victims. When a survivor goes to the Southern Health Board to sit down to talk to, to somebody about it, they're restricted to the amount of times that they can sit down and talk mm. to a psychiatrist. With survivors, that's not possible. A survivor could walk into a, a psychiatrist and talk to her one day and walk away and not come back, or come back months later. With the towards healing, there is no limit. Um, I have information and documents above. I'll get them to you. They're on Facebook. I yeah. would suggest anybody use them. In relation to the book, as I said, I'll give out my number and if people want to text me yeah. I don't care if they're in Mallow or Limerick the book was brought out for people to understand and know the truth and read our stories mm. and if they want to text me their names addresses and phone numbers I will get a book to them make no mistake but and you have you have a, um, 
a charity on Facebook, haven't you? I do, yeah. What's it called? Um, Survivors United. Survivors United. It is my organisation, but I don't accept donations. I don't can, want them. You can be contacted through that. I can be contacted through that. Um, my number is 86 uh, 362 8386. Ring it. I'm there and I can advise you. I can talk to you. If you want the book, I'll get the book to you. You, you, just, you mentioned there you have a film on the way. There is a film on the way. When the book came out, I always knew that somebody was going to come along and talk to me about a film. I didn't want it to be an Irish director or film director because the films that have been brought out didn't tell anything about us. I wanted somebody different, and I've got a foreign person who's well-known in this world. I mean very well-known. She's done it before, and she's going to do it. And it's going to be done both our ways. Like, I couldn't name and shame the actual probation officers, but now people know that it was the probation service and the social workers and the teachers in Churchill School. They were part of it. And I get to talk about them in the film. Um, the film is going to be brilliant. Yeah. We'll have to be extras, James. Yeah. I'm just trying <laughs> yeah. to think of who's going to play you. Um, <laughs> Maybe I'm uh, hoping, Matt Damon or something. I'm hoping... <laughs> um, no, I'm... My daughter has kids. Like, I have four fantastic kids. They're decent. They were brought up decent. There was a time when I was living in the old house in Lanley Grove and my kids would come back from school and I'd have to run out the door because I couldn't help them. Mm. And they understood now, they understand that and we are so close, I would do anything for them, they would do anything for me. But my daughter's son kind of reminds me of me. He has ADHD and dyslexia and if I have a choice, it'll be him. Well, look, best of luck with it, and uh, thanks a million for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Like, as I said to you, lads, people want to come out, but they don't know where to come because of 96FM and Yee. This is a stepping stone. Yeah. People, like, I was talking to a lot of people there now that it came to a stage in their lives where they're ready to talk about because they heard me on the radio I play with a band inside in town. I play the spoons, but I don't take any money there. And I enjoy it for two reasons. One, because elderly survivors would see me playing the spoons and they'd smile. They get happy memories yeah. of their days in the pub or in the house. And they, mm. and they come over and they talk to me and it cheers them up. And that makes me fucking happy. They tried to sit me down with psychiatrists and I ran away. The one thing I find that helps me is that when I can help somebody that doesn't know how to help themselves or they're being blocked, and I see them smiling, I'm happy. That's you know what, James? I must give you some massive amount of credit like, to, to, to be able to sit here after what you're after going through in your own life as, as a young child. And, you know, uh, t- there's a lot of talk about survivors and, and victims. Like, you, you are a survivor. I am a survivor, yeah. You, know, you didn't sit down... You came up with your story and you spoke about it. Um, and I just want to listen, you know, without getting emotional about it. No, myself, I just want to give you a lot of credit. And I'm sure James is the same. Well, as I said, lads, there's no I in team. Exactly. 
And you know what? It's even better that you're from Churchfield. Yeah. Because, um, and do you know what? We're all after doing a lot of mad shit. <laughs> Listen, a lot of yeah. your stories there were similar to my own. Yeah. Do you know what? Like, yeah. I remember when I was getting the beatings off the girls from Robin, I used to enjoy, do you know, caches? Mm. Do you know the clock above that mm. when you're looking up? I used to be up there eating bags of chips, throwing chips down at girls, and I'd be falling all over the roofs laughing. You <laughs> must have been some climber. <laughs> I could climb up the side of a house. You know the, the, cop, the old corporations yeah. with the, the little pebbles? Yeah. I used to climb up the side of that. I, I tell you, boy, I like shots. You know what? <laughs> Let's, like, if anyone's just wondering what's going on with Tim. The printer today at home. So um, I thought I could actually refill my own cartridges today and I spilled the, the, the ink everywhere. So no. I can't get it out of my hands. Let's finish on a, a happy note. Give us a, give us a funny story from... Probably back in the day. I heard something about a bus. <laughs> there was a bus, there was a train, and I came that close to taking a helicopter. Jesus. I'm not joking. I was inside in town one day. The old buses where the gales were up here, you know. Number two used to stop just below the Savoy, and the bus was full of old people. <laughs> I said, fuck this. I hopped on the bus, threw on a hat. Started the bus up and drove all the way up the north side <laughs> with people on it. <laughs> I got up to the top of Churchville and as you're coming around to come down Churchville Hill, one of my neighbours, she was on 96 FM and she confirmed that this. She was there to get all dolled up to go in town so she was running up the road. Of course, like the doors open, she looks, she says, fuck off. <laughs> and she walked away. Um, I took a train from Houston or from the railway station in Cork. I jumped on, started pushing buttons. The train started moving. I jumped off. But I think the maddest thing that I done in my life was I was walking down China Street one day, and there was a few of the lads down the end at the crossroads there, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And I was walking down anyway. We were out of getting a load of new clothes out of, out of Queens Hall Castle. But um, they were all arguing and they were pointing up at the fish. The fucking fish is gold. It's not a ton of fish. And I said, lads, relax. I'll find out. I went into the church, climbed all the way up. Up and I started hitting the fish on up the tail. The up the top of Shannon Street. Came back down. Lads, it's gold. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> Christ. Did you get the bottle to go up that high? I don't think I had no fear of... I no. could... At that age, I could get up... On the roof. Did you climb market. up on the outside of the, oh, the, outside of the, the church? No, on the inside. From the inside. Ways up, just oh, tunnels nice. and everything. But once you get up onto the gold thing, then there's a rope. I put yeah. that up. I know, fail. Yeah. But um, I Jesus. nearly took a helicopter. I was mad. Yeah. <laughs> your book is out. Your movie's going to be out. If people want to contact you, they can get you on Survivors Unite on or Facebook. 086-362-8386. That's my number. Text me your name and address and I'll get the book to you. That's what I do. Brilliant. And uh, they can also be contacted through our social media. So uh, yep. the two narrows, Facebook, Instagram, mm-hmm. and myself and Timmy are on Twitter. And look, um, thanks to everybody for watching and supporting us uh, since June, since we're going. Uh, 2021 is going to be a big year for me, Timmy, and the podcast. And... Uh, we hope that you'll uh, be by our side through the whole out of it. So, look, we'll see you again next Saturday morning. Good luck. Thanks for having me on, lads. I really appreciate it. Good man. 
Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.